You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So you may have noticed over the past year or so that there have been a lot more stories in the headlines about unions, as well as what I'll refer to for the moment as, quote, corporate bashing. This is not a coincidence. In addition to having the Airfingers, quote, most pro-union president in the White House, as well as union attorneys throughout the administration and the various agencies like the NLRB, uh, the DOL, OSHA, EEO, OLMS, etc. With the advent of social and digital media, there is a collective of pro-union writers and activists driving a union narrative that many today may not have become aware of until really recently. With Well-known news platforms like Huffington Post, Vice, The New York Times, Washington Post, and even Bloomberg News, as well as a ton of lesser-known print and digital publications, unions and their advocates have developed what could be referred to as a, quote, echo chamber. So what is an echo chamber? Well, when you're only hearing the same perspectives and opinions over and over again, you may be in something called an echo chamber, and that's according to the Goodwill Community Foundation or GCF Global. Echo chambers can be tricky to recognize, especially if you're in one. If you're ever wondering if a social group or website may be an echo chamber, stop and think about a few questions. Do they tend to only give one perspective on an issue? Is that viewpoint mainly supported by rumor or incomplete evidence? Are facts ignored whenever they go against that viewpoint? If you answered yes to any of these questions, again, this is from GCF Global, you may have found an echo chamber. Yesterday, for example, on laborunionnews.com, and quite by coincidence, I might add, I posted a link to a pro-union article entitled, Why There is More Labor Media Coverage, which was something of a self-congratulatory article And without using the term echo chamber, it shed some light on some of the participants. So many of the writers it spoke about appear to coordinate their coverage. And they may do it by just coincidence, or it could be something else. But they also use their media, social media platforms to drive followers to their stories and each other's stories. And that swarming on social media has caught a lot of companies off guard. If a company is not prepared for it, and worse, isn't even aware of it, the echo chamber, along with the swarming that occurs on social media, can do a lot of damage to a company's brand very quickly. And this brings me to today's guest on Labor Relations Radio. About a week or so ago, Forbes posted an article entitled, How Companies and CEOs Can Prepare for and Respond to Rumors and Other Attacks, which I'll link to under the audio portion of this episode, by the way. One of the sources for the Forbes article was Nick Calm, the CEO of Reputation Partners. Reputation Partners is an integrated communications firm that provides a full range of PR, 
marketing and strategic services entirely in-house. Over the years, they've helped over 600 clients and their PR with their PR and strategic needs. And their services include public relations, marketing, digital and social media, web design and development, crisis communications, financial communications, employee and labor relations, as well as sustainability communications. Now, I've known Nick Calm for a long time, but we've really never had a chance to sit down and talk at length about business, so to speak. So yesterday, we had the chance to talk about a number of issues employers are facing today, from PR issues to union issues. Now, as, as you'll probably hear as you're listening, there are a couple times the internet slowed down as we were communicating. and But in all, Nick was able to share his perspective on a host of issues employers are facing from PR as well as branding perspectives. So here's Nick Calm. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So Nick Calm, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. And Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Good to be with you. Sorry about the glitch a second ago. Um, so tell us about Reputation Partners. Sure. So Reputation Partners is the strategic communications firm that I founded 20 years ago um, after a couple of long stints at some other public relations firms. So as you can appreciate with the name Reputation Partners, what we focus on is helping organizations, meaning companies, universities, not-for-profits, trade associations, and their leaders deal with all kinds of reputational-related issues. So it could mean their reputation is already good, they want to take it to a higher level, or it's solid, but there's some potential threats on the way, or last but certainly not least is when an organization finds itself in crisis and their reputation is very much at risk. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask you, you were recently quoted in a Forbes article, um, and and pretty extensively in terms of, um, you know, what happens if your organization is being threatened or leaders have become, um, you know, under attack, so to speak. And so you, so you folks do, you help out companies or organizations that are basically under assault, Yes. I mean, not all of the business is focused on that. There's a fair amount that a company is either going through some significant change. Maybe they're going public. Maybe they're going private. Maybe they're spinning off a division. Maybe they're trying to improve how they communicate with their employees. So there's lots of things that are not necessarily crisis related that we help them with. But there is a a significant, if perhaps a a minority uh, share of our business that's focused on direct crisis and issues management. And you've been doing this for a long time. A long time. Yeah, more than more than 30 years since I was obviously yeah. a, a baby. Yeah. <laughs> you and I have known each other for a number of years. But we have. Been... I think probably at least 10, maybe. maybe more. Yeah. Yeah, right around there. I've always looked up to you, so to speak. <laughs> you probably yes, get I'm, that a lot, right? right? I am tall. I am tall. Yes, I do get that quite a bit. And sometimes when I'm dealing with certain crisis situations, it's like, is Nick security? No, no, he's the communications guy. Right. So have you seen in, and I don't necessarily know if there's a way to put a time frame on this, but have you seen um, your business changing or the types of needs that are uh, your clients are bringing to you? Have they been changing over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years? Or? Well, what's really changed, and, and this is some of what I talked about in that Forbes article, Peter, was the, the way companies are in the last few years, I'm really surprised at how many companies are wading into issues that they really had no business weighing into 
before, and they're doing it now. Now, I get if you're a consumer-facing company and you're, you know, you're, you're being pressured for some policy related to DEI or some other, you know, social issue that may or may not have much to do directly with your business. I get that companies are being pressured to do that more, but the speed with which that's now occurring is really quite surprising to me because when I came up in this industry and I started out as a lobbyist and a government relations and public affairs guy, you know, companies then they would absolutely play in the debates about issues that directly impacted their business. But if it was a larger societal issue, they mostly stayed away. So I'm really surprised now. And in fact, a big part of what I'm trying to do is help companies navigate through those waters so that they don't create more problems for themselves because they were either too outspoken or too malleable about an issue in response to either a minority of their employees or a fringe advocacy group or whatnot. Yeah, it seems like, um, well, in some respects, if they don't do something, they get targeted, right? If they don't come out and, you know, in support of this group or that group, they get targeted. And then if they do do something in support of this group or that group, then they get targeted on the back end for backlash, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me, it's obviously a dated reference, but back in the day when, you know, Michael Jordan was getting pressured to speak out on all kinds of issues and his comment, famous comment was, Republicans buy sneakers too. And it just, it's amazing to me in this very divided country that we live in, and I know you know what I'm talking about, Peter, um, that a company would choose to potentially alienate 40 to 50% of their customer base. That's the amazing thing. It's like, are you listening to the squeaky wheel? Yes, obviously you need to, and we counsel companies and clients on this all the time. Listen to your publics. Don't just communicate with them, but listen to them too. But it doesn't mean you need to give in. I mean, there's a very good example of a company listening but not giving in was State Farm on things like dropping Aaron Rodgers when he came out publicly against the vaccine requirement. They navigated that just fine. A consumer-facing company, they did not say they were going to drop him despite his comments. He was a key spokesman for the company. And, you know, they just decided that they were going to stand by him no matter what, even while they continue to encourage employees and others to get vaccinated. Well, it's, it's interesting, um, like over the weekend, and, and if I, I don't know who your clients are, so I don't want to like probe into that. But, you know, the big ones over the headlines over the weekend is Disney wading into the yeah. controversy in Florida. Right. And, you know, that's kind of a big leap because... You know, again, like you said, 40 to 50% of your audience may appreciate it or may not appreciate it. Well, and they, you know, they as a company have been moving further and further to the left in recent years. But the problem that they had, and they are not a client, which is why I can speak about them openly, is their CEO basically came out and said, it doesn't make sense for companies to take positions on these issues. Don't do that. It invites, it invited the kind of storm of criticism that they got from both within and without. Until that point, they were getting some commentary from some of their um, Imagineers and I think their uh, Pixar unit and maybe elsewhere. But until the CEO basically said, I'm not going to take a position, that's when, as soon as he said that, that's when the heat really got turned up. If he had just stayed quiet, doesn't mean the criticism and the pressure would have gone away, but you can deal with that. But you see this with airlines getting into legislation about voting rights and so forth. It's like, what does that have to do with your business? Why are you taking a position on that? You should be taking a position on things like renewable fuels being used in aircraft. That directly relates to your business. 
you should maybe talk about when cities are opening and reopening after COVID, because that obviously deals with things like business travel and leisure travel. Those things that directly relate to the business, you can take any number of different positions on without turning off half the country. You start saying, how dare Texas pass this law or Georgia that law or Florida that law that has little, if anything, to do with the business, you're inviting criticism and scrutiny in a way you wouldn't have otherwise. I'm wondering if that's coming from um, at the board level. And there, there's been a push over a number of years to have... Um, you know, various stakeholders and and kind of swaying away from this is our business and we're going to just stick to our business to, you know, okay, let's start getting into social policy and things like that. I don't, know if, uh, I don't think shared governance is the right term, but it's, you know, it's along the lines of let's be expansive and good global citizens and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Well, I mean, certainly in the sustainability arena, you've got people like Larry Fink at BlackRock who are pressuring companies directly uh, to go zero uh, fossil fuels, for example, which is interesting given what's going on with gasoline prices today. But certainly you've seen that now with some of the shareholder votes and resolutions that have passed that are mandating companies like Exxon and others, and certainly through that whole industry, to be taking much more um, uh, environmentally sensitive positions in terms of what their product lines are going to be and how they're going to explore. So to your point, yes, at a boardroom level or a significant uh, investor level, it's definitely happening. Right. I've always, um, so I'm not in your arena, but I'm in uh, somewhat, your arena kind of folds into ours occasionally. And, but I've always um, told clients when they're dealing with labor issues, focus on your, your core group first and then just kind of extend out. So if your core group is your employees, your communication should center around them and then your shareholders and then your, you know, the wider public, kind of like a, a bullseye going outwards. And it seems like more and more and more these days, they're focusing on the outside as opposed to the inside. Yeah. Well, and there's an interesting thing and your, your story there just reminded me, there's an interesting paradox at play. If you're talking, if a reporter gets a press release or they get their hand on an internal memo, they're going to be a lot more focused on that internal memo because it wasn't designed for them. By the same right. token, employees are going to be much more believing to a large degree what they read or hear in the media than they hear in terms of from their own executives. So there is an interesting paradox there. It's the communications that are designed for a particular audience are less credible than the communications that are designed for another audience that the audience A gets their hands on. Because the newspapers and the media are more credible than management. Apparently, which is a sad commentary. Right. Well, it's so kind of back to the, the question, if, if you've seen changes, I, and this is just my view, I've seen probably over the last 12 to 14 years, a, and it's gotten louder and louder, more of a targeting of quote-unquote corporations or, or greedy corporate management. Right. And so now it's to the point where it's almost as though all employers, they just paint this broad brush, you know, across all employers being evil or greedy corporations. And it's and to some degree for like the CEOs, whether it's Bezos or somebody else, you know, it's gotten personal. Right. And they just attack because he's, you know, the figurehead. Maybe they did this back in the 1900s with the, the Ida Tarbell, the, you know, and John D. Rockefeller and all that, but it just, it's interesting to kind of see it escalate. 
And yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, look, and, and capitalism, which is obviously what that's the uh, the exemplars of, doesn't really have any defenders now. Even the the people who you know the Bezoses and the Buffets and the others in in that industry, the Musks, nobody is basically coming out and defending it. And then you've got support for socialistic tendencies and the idea that companies are greedy and exploitative at levels we've never seen, certainly in our lifetimes. And, you know, back yeah. to what I spend time doing, and you obviously spend all of your time doing, you know, the support for labor unions is uh, at the highest level from a public standpoint that it's been in, what, at least 57 years, I think. Yeah, and I, I attribute a lot of that to a lot of people just, um, they've targeted the youth in the country. And like, I just did a piece recently on um, Teen Vogue and the uh, yeah, pro-union articles in there. And I'm just like, you know, what does labor unions or socialism have to do with fashion for teenagers? So, <laughs> right. um, and they, and they've done a good job doing that. I, the, you know, I think the um, trigger, not necessarily the trigger, the uh, incident that highlighted it for me was, I want to say it was 2009 or eight, somewhere in there, the SEIU going on to uh, the front lawn of one of the executives mm. of, I think one of the banks or something, but, Literally, like, I think if I recall, the um, the wife and kid were at home at the time, the dad was at work, and they had like, you know, 80 or so protesters on their front lawn. And I was like, wow, they're starting to target people at their homes. And, you know, they did this with the Verizon strike. They went to uh, the CEO's home out in, I think it was Connecticut or somewhere, and, you know, taking coffins down the street, and you're killing the middle class and, you know, making noise in the neighborhood. And, you know, in the old days, they wouldn't do that sort of stuff. You know, the labor management war, so to speak, was less personal. It was during working time, so to speak. Oh, yeah. But that is, I mean, back to your earlier question in terms of what other changes have I seen. I think the, you know, the uh, strikes and actual votes are comparatively rare relative to these corporate campaigns, which again, to your point, and that those examples you were just citing being terrific uh, examples of that. I mean, there's obviously a lot more of that going on now and going after the banks and, okay, where, who's your board of directors and let's show up at their homes and their right. offices. So there's a whole conditioning piece that needs to happen. And I'm sure you do this with your clients and I do as well. It's like, if you're in a labor situation, these are the things that Labor unions are more than happy to do these days, and you just need to be ready for it. And you can say that until you're blue in the face, but people, we're using your SEIU on the front lawn example, people get freaked out when that stuff happens. I don't blame them. If I had a bunch of SEIU people out on my front lawn right now, I'd be pretty uh, upset. Yeah. Well, I have alligators in my yard, so I don't really worry about that. So. <laughs> you feed them to the gators. Yeah, there you go. Um, so that was a joke, people, if you're listening, and don't take offense to that. <laughs> <laughs> I never know who I'm going to piss off these days. Yeah. Um, so the, well, I guess um, when it comes to your business and you're dealing with companies that are starting to face this stuff, do you help them navigate through that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in the best, you know, we'll, we'll get called sometimes when a company is, you know, well into a strike situation already. And what do we do? Or a strike has been set for two or three days from now. What do we do? You know, we can jump in and just like any other kind of crisis situation, we can do quite a bit then, but we can do so much more when the organization sees that they have, 
you know, they're getting rumblings of an organizing effort or if they have represented employees six, eight, 12 months before the contract is up. There's so much more that can be done from a communication standpoint yeah. before they get to that point. So we really try to encourage people, but you know, it's again, it's the, the preventative side of things, especially when times are tight or when resources are tight or staff is stretched thin, companies have a hard time looking out at that, but there's so much that can be done in terms of understanding employee sentiment, in terms of improving employee communications, vehicles and messaging, creating two-way vehicles, understanding community sentiment, improving community sentiment, all before you get to either an organ a direct vote or if they're already represented, the contract talks begin. Because if, again, the other thing obviously too is you can continue, as you well know, the communications that you've started before you get into the laboratory conditions and keep going with them while that happens. Versus so many times the company you know will come in and they're like, we think that there's a union about to you know the, um, file a petition for an election. And we're like, great. Well, what have you done to communicate with your employees? Well, not too too terribly much. Well, how are they feeling about management? I don't really know. Well, we did a survey three years ago, but you know we didn't really like the results, so we didn't really share them with them. Like, okay, guys, you, that, it, we, there's your your there's tools in the toolbox that we could be using if we had a little bit more. So we're going to use whatever we've got, but it's definitely more of an uphill battle when it's the last minute like that. But to answer your question directly, we obviously help at every piece of that continuum with organizations, whether they're in the midst of you know the fight of their lives with a union, or they they're just forward looking enough to see that they might have an issue down the road. Well, you know, something I've noticed, um, and this is not just since I've left the union movement, but even while I was in the union movement, um, companies are, they seem to be afraid to speak publicly about what's going on. And I'll give you just a couple quick examples. ExxonMobil just finished a lockout that was a 10-month lockout. The only times you would see anything coming out from the company was in response to a reporter question. Or um, there's a strike that just, I think, just finished over the weekend up in West Virginia that, yeah, there's nothing coming out from the company. You see the unions talking to the media all the time and controlling the narrative, but companies generally don't, they don't even wade into the narrative half the time. No, and they won't even say the U word. Right. They won't even talk about the union until there is actually a union uh, uh, on the property, basically. Right. It's amazing to me. And then, you know, one of the things I know we've talked about a little bit is, you know, you see companies that are afraid to basically come out and give their position clearly about whether they think a union would be a good fit or not. There's a lot of, and we struggle with this with our clients quite a bit, there's a lot of kind of mealy mouth talk and, you know, there's nothing really wrong with unions. We just don't think they belong here and yet they've done a lot of good in the world and i mean guys you can't deliver that kind of mixed message you really can't i mean and this I, is something i've written about and talked about a lot i had a, You're a going colleague to be, unless you roll out the red carpet and recognize them without an election you are going to be called a union buster so if you're going to be called that anyway, you might as well put up a good fight and be very clear about why you don't support a union and you don't support them here on the property and the damage they can do. doesn't mean bashing them. You know, some clients will sit there and go, we need to go after the union leadership. And we like, okay, that only, first of all, that almost never works. And it definitely doesn't work unless you have a beloved relationship between your CEO and your employees. And if you did, the union wouldn't be sniffing around anyway. Much better to be very clear about what some of their tactics are, how they're able to misrepresent what they can do and lie in terms of all these promises, and you can't. 
And you need to build up a heck of a lot in terms of why they're better off just dealing with you, reminding them of all the good things you've done for them without promising things in the future, because that obviously gets you into, into trouble with the NLRB, which is only looking for those kind of mistakes these days. Um, but you got to be clear about it. I, you know, one of the things I commented about, again, I hope I'm not mentioning one of your clients, but you're looking at what Starbucks is doing in terms of their non-union messaging. On, it's so, it's like, it's the opposite of Starbucks coffee. It's as tepid and weak as you can get. You need to be stronger about that stuff. You do if you're going to win. And as you can see, they're not winning. I had a colleague years ago that used to use the phrase, you can't ride two horses with one ass. <laughs> and, and that's what a lot of companies are trying to do, unfortunately. Um, but and to your point, if you know, if you believe your relationship with your employees is better being a direct relationship, then tell them why. You know, and you know, a lot of and I, I need to do an episode on this because um a lot of people on the left as well as in unions don't understand the aversion that companies have towards unions and the cost factors, irrespective of wages and benefits. It generally costs your company a lot to have a union. And, you know, just, I didn't understand it until I started doing studies on it. And it's like, there's a lot of sources out there that just flat out say it. But most people on the left and, and in unions don't understand it. You Absolutely. Know? And it's not right. wages and benefits. Right. It's just, I mean, you've got to have labor relations pros. You need to have consultants. You have to make sure you got extra legal fees, almost all of them, you know, do. Just by necessity. And then, you know, you're you're in arbitrations and you're called up in hearings. And, you know, it it is definitely a significant, and of course, you know, people will sit there, as you well know, say, well, maybe the employees will get tired of the union. Well, we know how how hard it is to desert and how hands off the employer has to be about that. People, you know, it, the whole idea of this is more permanent than any you would get or anything else that might be in your life. If you vote them in, you will never get them out. Yeah. Well, to to the company you just raised a second ago, Starbucks, um, they've been, as you mentioned, losing campaigns. They've got, I saw, uh, I posted on Labor Union News last night, the um, 118 active petitions or something like that. And it seems as though um, they've almost bred that themselves in terms of, you know, they've kind of encouraged the collectivist ideal. They've hired certainly people with collectivist ideals. Um, and so they're just taking the, the employees that is, are just taking it to the next step, logical step. And now all of a sudden they're saying, no, 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 let's, you know, that's probably a step too far. And that message just isn't resonating with those employees. And then when I read the articles or the tweets that are being put out there, the employees themselves don't appear to have any inkling in terms of how unions work, you know, what collective bargaining is all about. They, you know, we're going to have a voice or a seat at the table and all that. Well, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, it sounds good, right? right? Would you like more pay? Sure. Would you like better benefits? Although Starbucks is already known for providing better, better, good benefits. Sure. Would you like better, you know, scheduling and opportunities for advancement and training? And that's what the naive and you hear that. Sure, I can get. And don't worry, we won't start charging you dues until we get the first contract. So it won't even cost you anything until we get you more. Doesn't that sound great? Yeah, that's well, that's the pitter patter. Um, The and the unfortunate part about that is a lot of the 
and I hate to call them kids, but it's, you know, a lot of the kids these days are just like, they're falling for it. And I saw, I saw a similar statement from one of the organizers at Amazon in, in uh, Alabama. Yeah. And even the union president who's Stuart Applebaum for the RWDSU was quoted last week of talking about, you know, ratifying contracts and stuff, not explaining the other half of that is if they don't ratify a contract, um, it still takes two thirds to go out on strike and then they wind up in the contract anyway. Right. Like it's just the half truths that are involved with this. Well, sure. The employer sit there and do, but they be truthful with all their communications and the union doesn't. And so that fair advantage that the unions have, I mean, this ridiculous canard that, you know, corporations have this unfair advantage with these, with the, you know, the 24 hour captive meetings and, all of that stuff, and we can't get to them, and you know, blah blah blah. But the, the reality is, they can say anything they want, and they can get away with it, and the companies can't. So, you know, that you're fighting if, when you get somebody who is basically offering goodies for free and can say whatever they want in order to try to get people to sign a card or or, or vote yes. You know, that is that's a tough uphill battle. So, why in the world? And this is literally what I will sit there and say to my clients: Why would you fight that battle? blindfolded with one arm tied behind your back talking about the Starbucks. It's like, look, you got to be clear. You're good. You know, you, this is going to be tough, but they're already coming in and, you know, they get to control whether there's an election or not and, and pull it at the last minute. But, you know, you, you've got to, to know how your employees are feeling and be doing stuff to listen to their concerns. Yeah. And well, and I think we're entering a time where, um, Companies are, especially if they do away with, do away with either captive audience meetings and or cause uh, equal time, and they're already moving towards backdoor card check. As they start doing these things and rolling them out, companies who aren't aware are going to get caught with their pants down, so to speak. And those that are aware are going to have to move the pendulum further back to start inoculating their employees before they ever get a uh, inkling of union activity, which some are, some are moving to, but not enough. But many, you know, men are to hire these days and you can't fill these jobs. So they've got all of these folks having to then who they do have working, working more hours, having less flexibility. All of that stuff just plays into the union rhetoric and the union appeal so much more. So they're vulnerable as can be. So why not communicate often, early and often about, you know, the idea, listen, you're probably going to be hearing from a union. If you aren't, and I'm telling you something, and you don't hear from a union, just put it in the back of your mind and then don't worry about it. But if you hear from a union, they're likely to tell you this, 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 and this. Here's why that's not true. This is what we're doing for you, A, B, C, and D. You know, that those are the right. things the smart company has got to be doing now. If you're in manufacturing, if you're in healthcare, if you're in uh, telecommunications, if you're in technology, you know, the other thing is, as you know, unions are now targeting industries that they historically haven't been in at all. I mean, we're seeing it with cultural institutions. We're seeing it with in academia, certainly. And then obviously in a lot of these other uh, in, in healthcare, like crazy as well. So there's just so much going on there. And then if you wait until the union shows up, man, it's so much harder. Well, yeah, two points on that. Um, it's fascinating because in I've seen this in the last several weeks with some of the articles. When a company is explaining factually that with a union you can gain, you can stay the same, or you can lose, the comment 
you can lose is viewed as a threat by the unions, right? Yes. It's a factual statement. There's case law on it. Um, and so we're seeing with the uh, game workers is another industry, the game uh, developers, oh, yeah. another industry yep. that's getting hit real hard. And again, these companies are more progressive, if you will. Um, and they've touted their progressivism. But then all of a sudden, when their employees want to unionize, they're totally caught off guard. Right. And um, I just lost my train of thought on that. But it was, it's, I'm, we're just in a very strange time. And I've been trying to put my finger on it because I've been doing this for so long. Um, and I'm just watching kind of more as a spectator, although I'm like not always spectating, but it's, I'm trying to step back and look at it as a spectator. We're seeing the societal change. And I don't know if it's because of the pandemic or it's been growing for a long time. I think the pandemic has some of it, something to do with it, but. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's just been a long time coming and it's been a, like a slow burn or a slow build, whatever you want to call it. And again, I mean, I think we're, we're now in a period, certainly for, Whatever period the, the Biden administration is still running the show and the NLRB, I mean, it is, you know, very precarious times for employers who are non-union and want to stay that way or, or are double-breasted and want to keep the union presence to a minimum. I know what I wanted to ask you. So I've noticed over the years, um, there's some very, very good paternalistic companies that provide a lot of benefits to their employees, yet they don't communicate or tout those benefits enough. And I literally just had this conversation with a client last week that, you know, you guys have great benefits, but, you know, in at least two of the facilities we we're at, they didn't even know what their benefits were. Wow. So do you guys help design like internal, I, I call it internal marketing. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but do you guys do that for companies? Absolutely. Yeah. We, you know, we'll call it employer branding or something along those lines. And it's basically it's marketing to the employees and by extension, the prospective employees, what it's like to work at the organization and why it's so good. So we do talk about things like opportunity for advancement and pay and how competitive that is, what the benefits are like and what the culture is like and, what the reputation of the organization is like, absolutely. Because you can't, yeah, to your point, if you take that for granted, forget it. I mean, and the thing is, the irony is that these companies are spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars providing right. these benefits, and they're not even getting the benefit, the benefit of the benefit by having the employees appreciate, wow, you know, this is pretty unusual. Or even, you know, you'll see these folks, I'm sure you've seen this a lot too, Peter, it's like, People who grow up in an organization, if they've been there for 20 or 30 years, that's the other thing I'm sure you see as well, where an organization is put in place either, you know, a defined benefit plan and they're trying to move away from that to a defined contribution plan or any other kind of change or no cost health care. And you try to introduce that to an employee base that's maybe worked there for 10 or 15 or 20 or more years. And they, they don't have any frame of reference about what it's like out in the real world. Yeah. And then you have to show them the data and say, look, what we're doing here, what we've been doing, only 10% of employers nationally are doing. And here's why we're moving away from that, because it costs us X. And if we can take even a portion of that, save some money, save some jobs, and then invest the rest in you, you'll be better off. You, you, the company will be better off because the company is going to be more of a, a secure place of employment for you than if we keep funding this. We were involved a few years back with a, an ESOP 
that was, they called us in. And basically the whole challenge there was, you know, we went into their headquarters and they had these big banners up. We will always be an ESOP, it said. And we went in and we met with the CEO and with the chairman. He's like, we've got to sell the company. I'm like, okay. So my first piece of advice, take down the banners. Yeah, <laughs> Send right. it to the dry cleaner and never put them back up again. <laughs> right? No, because, it, and, and literally it was such a successful ESOP. They were having to put more money into that ESOP than they were making profits every year. So then it became a challenge of convincing the ESOP members, all the employees, to vote to sell the company in this case. A big uphill battle, so you needed to do a campaign, a la a union avoidance campaign, to basically convince the employees that they would be better off in selling the company, even though, in this case, the company was being sold to a company 17 times its size, publicly traded, who had closed a nearby manufacturing plant 15 minutes from the headquarters of this company. So we had to do a huge campaign about educating and all that. But again, you'd had all these employees who'd grown up in this ESOP for years, if not decades. They're like, well, this is how it's always going to be. No, it's not. And this is an unusual situation. Yeah. Change change is a hard issue for employees to swallow. And it's, um, we started seeing that in the 90s quite a bit. And just, you know, especially with more seasoned workforces. I'm, I'm being polite without saying old, even though I am. Um, well, no, so, you're right. I mean, one of the things we'll talk about in this, you know, a lot of clients will sit there and go, well, we're going to change this. We're going to change that. I'm like, guys, you really need to understand this is going to be a big deal for your employees. Any kind of change to your point just now is. And the way we bring that home to people is we say, okay, you come home from work and your spouse says to me, we need to talk about a change in our relationship. You know, the first thought going through your mind is, oh, great. I can't wait to see what this change is. Or your boss calls you in and says, we need to talk about a change in your job here at the company. You're not immediately going, oh, goody, a 30% promotion, a bigger title, and a company car. You're not thinking that. You're thinking, right. oh, geez, what's coming? It's not good. We fear change because it's unsettling to people. And again, back to the whole pandemic thing, everybody's been putting a paint shaker and it's been turned on for five minutes or so, and we're just coming out of that. So if you talk about any kind of change to people's life, livelihood, pay, benefits, working conditions, any of that other stuff, it shakes them up. Well, the other thing I've noticed with the uh, pandemic, and we've had campaigns where um, these employers should not have had campaigns. Like they did everything right through the pandemic, right? They union and non-union treated people across the board well. Um, the big thing was that because of the social distancing, the masks, the the you know, just inability to hold meetings, mm -hmm. communication went, you know, down yeah. through the floor. And as a result, you know, companies weren't able to speak with their employees, do meetings and et cetera. We start seeing campaigns just from that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. People no, look, as you know, unions will look for any vulnerability they can. And that was certainly one of them. It yeah. did make it a little harder for them to do their face-to-face -face kind of recruiting. But as you know, too, they've gotten much, much better at using social media to recruit. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and the Facebook groups and all that oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah, WhatsApp and um, so. Do you guys? You don't necessarily do quote unquote campaigns. You're kind of involved in the PR side of the campaigns. Yeah, or? I mean, so we're I, we would not call ourselves persuaders. So if that's what right. you mean from a campaign standpoint. We do not do that. But in terms of messaging, vehicles preparing spokespeople, listening to sentiment from inside and outside, communicating on behalf of the company and with the company, really more preparing them to communicate 
with external stakeholders, with their employees. No, we do all of that stuff. Okay. Great. Yeah, I was curious. I did not know that. The, um, yeah. So we would then, not we would not do, I think, the kind of work that you do specifically where you are in there talking to supervisors, talking to employees. You know, we will do some training of supervisors. We've done that in a number of situations, just sort of educating them about what it means to deal with a union. And here we are in a contract talks, but like being embedded within a, a company when they're in the midst of a campaign. No, we would not typically do that. We'd work alongside folks like you on that. Yeah. So, and, but labor disputes that you, you handle with like external oh, yeah. and internal. Strikes, audiences. lockouts, yeah. corporate campaigns, work to rule. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that that's both media and. Yeah. All um, audiences, elected officials, right. neighbors, prospective employees, referral sources. Yeah. And that's part of it too, is you got to think about all the different audiences. That's so, uh, to your point, you, you were talking about the concentric circle, starting with the inside. It's like, yeah, it's like, okay, great. You absolutely need to talk to your employees, but then you need to be talking to the media, elected officials. You know, we see this happening so much now, the elected officials jumping on the bandwagon, not understanding the issues, the editorials coming out as well. You got to be very comprehensive with that stuff and get your message, what you're trying to do at the bargaining table if you're already unionized or why you don't want a union, being very clear about that internally and externally. And again, the goal with a lot of these groups, obviously, is not necessarily to win them over and have them come and say, yes, XYZ company should absolutely stay non-union. It's to basically encourage neutrality, if you will, and to basically not come out in favor of the company and not come out in favor of the union. If you get that in a lot of situations, that's a win. Yeah, you know, I don't know that if there's ever been a study done on it, but there are so many municipalities or politicians out there in states, you know, state, county government, city government, stuff like that, that go out there and they stand on a picket line or they do a press conference with the union. And pretty soon the company who is in its own home, so to speak, it gets tired of of being bashed by their local politicians. And I wonder if there's a component of the exoduses from say California or the blue States, you know, companies leaving to go somewhere else. I wonder if that's a component of it. you're in oh, one of those. Uh, in addition to policy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's the, the policy level just sort of, you know, breaking out the calculator and how much does it cost us to do business here? How hard is it to get, you know, how, what, how onerous are the regulations? What's the tax policy like? But yeah, if we're going to be a punching bag for elected officials left and right, do we want to stay in this state or do we want to go to a state that's more business friendly? Absolutely. That has to be a calculus, you know, again, because, you know, especially if you're talking about building a plant or operating something with any kind of significant capital investment, you only want to be spending that if you're a CEO, certainly CEOs that I talk to, where you believe that you're going to be in a business friendly environment for a long period of time. And again, obviously, you know, people, as we've talked about, voting migration shifting and all of that and states, you know, California folks leaving to go to Texas and Arizona and elsewhere and changing the, the complexion, if you will, from a voting standpoint in those states. But absolutely, that's that's got to be a factor. And yeah. again, it, it sort of fits into the whole thing we were talking about before, which is that, you know, corporate America just does not do a really good job of defending itself or making friends and defending its reason for being and the benefits it provides. They just assume, okay, well, you know, people just understand that we provide all these jobs and we have that big gleaming headquarters building and we have that nice plant down the road and maybe you see our trucks on the road. So people are going to think favorably of us. 
doesn't work that way, especially if the chorus of negativity that's out there, as we were talking about, is loud and growing against you. And how does the CEO manage to, you know, pay himself $12 million a year? That's outrageous. doesn't matter if some TikTok knucklehead can make that kind of money contributing virtually nothing to society other than inane videos. People don't make that distinction. And now, now we both sound like old guys screaming at people to get off our lawn. Well, you know, that uh, really famous case was what, two, I, I want to say two to three years ago, um, Amazon was looking at building their second headquarters up in New York. I think it was just outside the city. I think yeah, it was either Staten yeah. Island or one of the yeah. boroughs. And AOC and some others were very loud against that. And they said, fine. And they <laughs> okay, we won't come to, here. Right. Right. <laughs> And I, yeah. I want to say it was like 25,000 jobs or something. Something like that. Yeah, big number. It was definitely yeah. five figures, whatever it was. And they basically decided to go to Virginia, I yeah. think, which, interestingly enough, has now just shifted a little bit back or maybe a lot back towards uh, the red from being a blue state, which sort of validates their decision. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, Virginia used to be number one for business climate, and um, then they decided to go more towards purple. And, right. and I had a, a client call... Um, a couple of years ago, and they're like, "Yeah, we used to have a great business climate. It's not so much anymore." I said, "Well, we appreciate it down here in the South, so um, we got, I think, some of their work." But yeah, it's it's a changing world going on. I I haven't quite put my finger on all of it yet, and it's I think we're going to be seeing it over the next two, maybe three years. Um, I saw President Biden came out over the weekend and said, "You know." If if the midterms turn out where the Republicans win, all I'm going to be stuck with is a pen for vetoing. And I don't know that, uh, not to get into politics too much, but I don't know if too many business leaders out there are going to be so sad if that happens. No, although I think a lot of them are too sanguine, though, because as we you alluded to earlier with the backdoor card check, there's still a heck of a lot of damage that can be done to the business community through the regulatory side of things, which obviously he's going to keep control of until you know, his four-year term is up. Yeah. You know, there's a big fight going on, which I haven't, is, we're kind of going off topic, but um, I didn't really appreciate it until probably in the last year. And that's the independent contractors. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's AB5 out in California. Right. And I've had a, I did a podcast with a couple independent contractors, one in California, the other Jersey, and they actually filed an amicus brief with the NLRB. Um and that affects 59 million Americans. And I oh, did not yeah. realize it was that big. Well, yeah, because, I mean, you, you know, the whole gig economy, and again, that really took off with the pandemic as well. And so people, you know, they, they've cobbled together a few different jobs. They have benefits maybe through a spouse or through one of the employers or whatnot, but they like that flexibility. And if all of a sudden they're going to be governed as being an employee, that's really going to shake things up a lot. Between yeah. that and the way they're, uh, you know, approaching the whole franchisee franchisor relationship too. Yeah. That's Join another employer. one that we're seeing a lot of with our clients. And it's like, you know, the, the savvy ones are waking up to it, but it's like, you know, look, if a bad thing happens at an individual franchise, it reflects absolutely on the corporate brand. So, but they're trying to stay away and be careful about, well, we don't set their hours. We don't set their wages. We don't set their benefits. We don't set this. We don't set that. If the NLRB and the courts decide, well, it doesn't matter. Yes, you do control it. That's talk about shaking things up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anything you're seeing on the horizon? 
Well, I just think more, more and more challenges for sure for employers with these kind of issues. And again, I just, you know, if they're listening and I know they are, you got to wake up guys. You need to be, you've got to have a finger on the pulse of what your employees are thinking. You got to have a finger on the pulse of what the community and your customers are thinking about you and then act on it before you have to have plans in place that directly speak to employee concerns, to public concerns. And again, it doesn't mean you're going to sit there and back to what we talked about at the outset about every kind of you know progressive political issue that may have nothing to do with your business. But if it relates to your business in terms of hours and working conditions and recruiting, you can be creative about stuff. Maybe you don't. You maybe you take some of the money you've got sitting there that you're going to do some big acquisition on, and you've figured out how you can spend that to make your employees' jobs a little bit easier. The fewer, the more that you can take out of a union's or an advocacy group's arsenal to come after you with, the less likely they are going to be to target you. And instead, they're going to target your competitor down the street that isn't as savvy about these things. That's the thing. It's like, you know, the sort of the waking up to what's coming, that piece, I really hope, begins to increase as these negative events start to accelerate. Because... Otherwise, they're just going to really have a snowball effect. And then by the time everybody wakes up, things are going to be to the point of no return, I think. You know, yeah. that's that's a big, big part of it. And the other thing seeing is the what's been fascinating the last few years, too, which we didn't even talk about, is sort of the intersection between the DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion activists, and the union activists and the symbiotic relationship between the two and how the unions are using these DEI uh, groups and individuals, both within companies and beyond, to advance their their causes in a way that we haven't seen really before, other than with some of these alternative uh, labor groups that we've seen around um, worker rights and so forth that are allegedly non-union, but of course funded by the SEIU and others. Yeah, so there's the you know, that whole political, the, the politics making interesting Dunfellows point. That's another one I think we should keep a very close eye on it, especially as these companies are doing a lot more to signal how um, sympathetic they are to DEI issues and committed they are to them. It really invites a level of scrutiny. And when that scrutiny happens from these DEI groups, the unions aren't going to be far behind and they can use that very much. And we've seen it with a number of our clients to try to leverage and, and pressure these organizations to recognize the unions. Well, you know, this is going back a decade or so, um, the Occupy movement. Mm. If you remember that back in 2000, I was at the very first Occupy protest in Manhattan on is, I want to say September in 2011. I want to say 27th or something like that. And I was there actually when I was uh, still writing for a couple of different websites. Um, And it was, I was there to more or less see if the unions were going to be supporting it on the at the outset, if there are going to be union placards out there, and and it wasn't at first. It was the um, balaclava wearing, you know, black black outfit protesters. You know, the ones that were at the WTO way back in the right. '90s. And but it did not take long for the SEIU, um, the FLCIO, you know, opened down when the occupied DC was going on. Opened up the FLCIO headquarters for showers and you know, to the occupiers and they glommed onto it. And that was, that was the spear tip, if you will, for the 2012 election, the 99%. Of course, Romney was up there as the Republican candidate. So it's kind of like they wrote the script for 2012 back in 2011 with Occupy. Oh yeah. And absolutely. 
I'm, I'm waiting. They keep doing it, you know, every four years or so. Sometimes it's about a year before whatever the general election is. You'll see the movement start. And I don't know what the one is going to be for. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, and I know you worked in that world for years, but it's like they, you underestimate unions at your peril. Look at how they've, look at how they've changed. I mean, I, back 10 or 15 years ago, the idea that a union would appeal to only employees who speak Spanish or some other language, oh, no. Unions were for old white guys at the time, right? right. Look at how that's pivoted. They Because they realize their future is in people of color, immigrants and others, a lot of very easily represented workforces. So you can't just have organizers who look like you and me. You've got to have people who speak Spanish and Tagalog and Portuguese and any not Chinese, Mandarin, right? You yep. need to have all these different languages and just a different, and then how they've used social media. This is the thing. You know, people ask me, why did you get into doing labor communications all those years ago? Because as a communicator, unions are so good at capturing hearts and minds, it forces me and my team to be at the top of our game. Stay away from the jargon, stay away from the corporate speak, try to do evocative communication that really speaks to hearts and minds, because God knows unions know how to do that. And I love the adversarial piece of it. It's like, but it requires you to be really on top of your game. Yeah. You know, another thing I've noticed, um, and this is a branding issue. So, and this has probably been going on for about four or five years, but it's really picking up steam is, um, so the SEIU is the parent union to Workers United, which is the parent union to Starbucks Workers United, right? Mm -hmm. So they are not doing local union numbers like they used to, like, you know, Deemsters local, blah, blah, blah a lot of the unions are adopting this brand of whatever their target employer is. So Starbucks Workers United, Burger Workers you know, right. United, and even CWA, which is my old union, is doing this with Google, which is Alphabet Workers United. And it's, it's just fascinating because I think they're, it's capturing the hearts and minds, as you spoke about, with, you know, of the young people. Well, we're not just a normal union. We're a Starbucks Workers Union. Yeah, Oh, absolutely. And they're branding it that way. We were recently working with a cultural institution that was, it turns out, successfully organized by AFSCME. But they were like, the union basically took the cultural institution's name and something along the lines of what you were just talking about. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we're not AFSCME. Like, yes, you are. This is AFSCME who's trying to work it. Oh, no, 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 we're not them. We're just something completely different. It's kind of like a bait and switch. It is. Well, because by doing that, right, from a branding point of view, you get to basically shed any of the baggage that an SEIU, if you did, you know, Google SEIU corruption, AFSCME right. corruption, right. there's going to be a lot of stuff that comes up. If you're Googling Cultural Institution Workers United or Starbucks Workers United, you know, and you're not going to get, and, and, and corruption, you're not going to get anything that pops up that way. So I think that's part of the reason that they've gone away from that, because they know that the employers that are trying to fight the good fight are going, hey, take a good look at the union that's trying to organize you. Yeah. Well, the UAW can certainly do that now. Right. <laughs> they should probably do it. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Well, Nick, we've been on for close to an hour, and I don't want to cut into your day too much. So This has been fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed the discussion, Peter. Thank I'm going to put the uh, the links to Reputation Partners under the uh, audio portion of the, the episode as well as the Forbes article. Great. Um, anything else I should put up there? No, I think just the website is great. And, of course, people, if they want to, you know, follow me on Twitter, I'm on there. And LinkedIn, of course, as well, just at Nick Calm. So 
you know, check me out. I'm, I'd be happy to anybody, any of your listeners who want to talk about any of these topics further, I'd be much appreciated. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking your, uh, taking an hour out of a Monday afternoon. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. It's always great to see you. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Nick Calm with Reputation Partners. And as you can tell, Nick has a ton of experience in helping companies with a whole array of different services with regard to their branding, their marketing, their internal marketing, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I felt because of the climate we're in today, it'd be good to have him on to kind of explain his perspective on what's going on. In any case, if you want to get hold of Nick, I've got the links to his website as well as the Forbes article uh, that he was quoted in under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. And that wraps up up another episode. If you want to reach out to us at Labor Relations Radio, you can hit us up at laborunionnews.com. You can go to the uh, comment section under this portion of Labor Relations Radio. Or you can give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Or on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.